Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Mark Campbell. And I laughed a little bit, and I cried a little bit, and I peed a little bit. That and more, but before that, don't forget, we need your winter holiday stories now. Your stories about stuff that happened at Christmas time, or Hanukkah, Thanksgiving, New Year's Eve, Kwanzaa, Festivus, <laughs> whatever it may be. If you have stories that are set in the winter time, happening around the holidays, that sort of thing. Usually these stories are on the more fun side, uh, but occasionally, you know, people have rather tragic stuff that happens at the holidays too. Pitch us for crying out loud. You might know someone who has a wonderful story. Have them pitch us. Or you might have seen an amazing story in the newspaper last year. Write to me. Let me know about it. You can find the submissions page at wristshow.com slash submissions. And you can also just email me directly if you have any tips at kevin at wristshow.com. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Now here's the show. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Franz Ferdinand behind me now. And we are calling this week's episode Scary Stories 13 Blood Curdling. <laughs> It is our annual Halloween Tide Scary Stories compilation. And we're going to hear a bunch today. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Mark Campbell. Before that, a little something from Juliet Steele. But we're going to jump in here with a story that came to us all the way from Norway. One of those creepy corners of the world that has a social safety net. 
Amalia was such a treat to work with on this story, and it was so sweet that she did record this with us when she was incredibly busy rehearsing a play called All Frogs Are Gay. Just a little behind-the-scenes trivia there. So without further ado, here is Amalia with a story we call Who's Calling? I am home for the summer. I'm hanging out with a friend because my parents are away and I hate being alone. We are in the middle of a chick flick when my phone rings. The caller ID just says Ukjent Nummer, which is Norwegian for unknown number. And since it's 11 p.m. on a Saturday, I assume that it must be a prank call. And normally I wouldn't have picked up, but since I'm with my friend, I think, ah, why not? This could be fun. I look at my friend like, what the hell kind of prank call is this? Hello? Who is this? My name is Per. Yeah, I don't know anyone named Per. I look over to my friend and says, Is he masturbating? Oh, I realize that's what it sounds like he's doing. I hang up and we start to hysterically laugh. I mean, this is so weird. He calls again, but I don't pick up. And he calls again and again and again, and he leaves me multiple messages. I listen to one and it's... And some inaudible words. But I can hear one thing. His dialect. He has my dialect. Which means he is probably from here. He could be outside. I'm probably just overreacting, but he's he's probably just called the random number and ended up with... But he could be outside. I'm looking out into the garden, but it's too dark to see anything. It's so dark that if someone was walking towards the garden door, I wouldn't see it until the hand was on the doorknob. Do you want to go over to my place? My friend asked me. Yeah, yeah, let's, let's do that. So I stayed at my friend's place, and the next morning I feel kind of stupid. I overreacted. I always do this. I get so scared from stupid stuff. If I listen now, it probably won't feel scary. It's probably just like, it's just a message. I play it and... Pick up or else. I regret it immediately. And all day my mind runs these crazy scenarios about him. Is he a killer? Is he a stalker? And that night he calls again. I start to frantically Google search. I need to figure out how he got my number and who he is. I mean, my number is not online. Have I met this man? 
Have I given him my number? He calls me again a few days later and then nothing. Summer is over and I go back to school. My school is 17 hours away up north, so I should be safe. A few months passes, I forget him, and one evening I'm at home by myself watching television when my phone rings. It's an unknown number. It's him. It must be him. This is the first time he has called me when I'm alone. Does he know that I'm alone? No, no, no. He can't be here. I just freeze. I can't turn off my phone because if something happens, I need it to call for help. So I just sit there and listen to the calling. Every time I get a voice message, I get a notification. You have one new message, two, three, seven. I can hear the door open and one of my roommates comes in. He looks at me sitting petrified on the sofa and asks what's up and I just... Oh, I just, I, I I don't know this guy, he's been calling me in, and, 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 and I, I can't get any sentences out, everything I say is just mumble. He just says, okay, I will take your phone and turn it off, and I will wake you in the morning, so you don't have to worry about the alarm, and tomorrow you can go to the police station. At the station, I meet with a female police officer. I tell her what's been going on, and she looks at me and says, I'm sorry, there's not really anything we can do. I'm stunned. We we need to do something. Last night he called me 14 times and left 7 messages. I can't take this anymore. I'm so scared. Well, we can listen to the messages, see if there's anything there. I press play. (sighs) My heart starts racing. Pick up. I must have looked pale, because she turns to me and say, Would you like to wait outside? I can listen without you. I don't know what was in those messages, but I know it was enough to make her change her mind. Turns out, it's really easy for the police to find out who has called you from a blocked number. And just a few weeks later, they called me and said that they had him. They said he was quite mentally ill, and that they didn't recommend pressing charges. We don't think he will call you again. We've talked to him, and he understands what he's done is wrong. Yeah, well, I I guess that's okay then. Some days later, I get his name in the mail. It's not a name I know. I search him up on Facebook, and I find him. The stalker. He's in his early 60s. He lives in a town close to mine. And seeing him, I just feel sorry for him. He has like 10 friends, no likes, he looks lonely and sad. It's like in Scooby-Doo when they take off the villain's mask and it's just a person. This picture just takes all my anger and fear away. And I think maybe if someone was calling him, he wouldn't have had to call me. Skin person. 
There's a cat watching and clapping and eating popcorn. The skeleton walked and talked. And then the person came. And then the skeleton ate the veins off of him. And then she pooped him out the river. And then he was dead. I'm sitting in the doctor's office in the waiting room and there is this clicking and I cannot figure out where it's coming from. And just about the time that it stops long enough for me to forget about it, it happens again. And I turn my head to look in the corner to see if that's where it came from. And in the corner is my mother. And she looks beautiful. She is young. She is rocking her mullet with a perm. She's looking sharp like she's getting ready to go into the office. She's got her slacks and heels on and one of those pretty silk blouses with the bow that attaches at the collar. And I think, what the heck is she doing here? That is so weird. I need to go talk to her and figure out what's going on. But when I get over to her, that is when I notice her skin has turned matte and gray and it is peeling off around all the edges. Her body is stiff and rigid. Her head is turned up towards the ceiling and her eyes are open and fixed on something that I don't see. And that is when I notice that the clicking is getting louder and the clicking is coming out of the back of her throat. And she begins to shake like something invisible has a hold of her. And she's trying to talk to me. She is trying to tell me something, but the only thing that will come out are these clicks. And that is when the black sludge starts to ooze from the corners of her mouth in spurts and roll down her neck. And I am really starting to freak out at this point. So I turn to the person standing beside me and I ask them, what is wrong with her? And they turn to me calmly and say, oh, you don't know. That is what happens to people when they don't know they're dead yet. And when I woke up, there was just this black cloud all over everything, just like when she was alive. And it made sense. It made sense that the first time I could dream about my mother after she died, it would be a nightmare because that was what our relationship was in life. From birth, my mother groomed me to be her disciple. I grew up knowing that it was my mama's world and everybody else was just living in it. And not only did they have the audacity to live in her world, but not a one of them ever gave her the love or the respect or the admiration that she deserved. And I knew all I had to do was keep her secrets and make her look good. And I could maintain my status as the golden child. And we were two peas in a pod until I went off to college and got old enough to start making decisions for myself. And at the time, I didn't understand what I had done wrong. 
but I knew that I was now one of those other people. I called my mom to let her know that I had gotten engaged and was going to be moving eight hours away. And she decided that it was disrespectful to give her that kind of news over the phone, so she quit speaking to me for a year. My whole family did too. And I knew that it wasn't because they were mad at me or thought that I was making a mistake. I knew that they were scared of what my mom would do if she found out that they had been talking to me. Now, living eight hours away helped, but I always had to make sure that I was very careful about what I said to people because she had minions everywhere. And the best part about it for her was they didn't even know they were her minions because she was such an expert at mining for information from innocent bystanders. Once she came up for a trip and I thought we had had a great time, but she quit taking my phone calls once she got back home. And then once she decided it was okay to talk to me again, she let me know that when she came out to visit at the office when I was off helping a customer, my boss had let slip that my husband and I were thinking about starting a family. And how dare I tell someone else before her? And I needed to figure out what kind of a daughter and what kind of a person I wanted to be. After she died, there was really nothing but relief. I wasn't sad. I was just relieved. And things really started to get better. But then there was this one night that I had another dream about her. And this dream started with a rumor. And the rumor was that she had figured out a way to come back from the dead. And that made my blood run cold because I knew that if there was anyone who could figure out how to do that, it was my mom. She could, she would, and she was coming. And I knew what I had to do. So I went and I got an ax and I got a shovel and I ran and I ran and I went to places I thought she would never look for, places she had never heard of or go to. And when I got there, I would chop off pieces of my body and bury them. Because if there was one thing she was not gonna do when she got back, it was touch any part of me that was good that I had gotten back since she had gone. But I wasn't finished. And every time I ran to a different place, there would be whispers. They had seen her. She was coming. I was running out of time. And that's when I knew, I knew that it didn't matter how fast I went. It didn't matter how smart I thought I was. I wasn't gonna go fast enough. I wasn't gonna be able to keep any of this a secret. She was gonna find it all and take it just like she always did. Now, you might think that my mom was the worst thing that ever happened to me in my life, but that was actually the death of my daughter. And at my mom's funeral, the pastor emailed me and asked me if I would be comfortable sharing how my mom was able to help me cope and get through the loss of my daughter. And I had a choice. I could say no, I don't feel comfortable. I could tell the truth about what she really did. But I chose super secret fucked up option number three. 
That's what I always did. I kept her secrets and I made her look good. So I told a half-truth. I said something like, you know, when bad things happen in life, it's not necessarily what people say to you, but how they make you feel that you keep with you forever. And he used what I said word for word, and it was a nice service. And afterwards, I had to listen to all of these people tell me how much they were going to miss her how loving she was, how she had been so kind and so supportive in this difficult part of their life. Every time I heard one of these stories, all I wanted to say was, well, that's great. That's great for you. You want to know how she supported me at my daughter's funeral, the worst day of my life? She announced to the entire room at the visitation that we were going to go outside for some air and some alone time. And then when we got out there, she lectured me about how embarrassing I was for crying. That I should be happy and relieved. That I should get down on my knees and thank the good Lord that he took her. Because who was I kidding? We both knew. We both knew that I was not capable of raising a kid with special needs. And I'm listening to yet another story from this person I don't know about how wonderful she was when it hits me. My mom died in December and it was freezing out. And there were still people lined up out the door to pay their respects. And I look around at all of her minions who don't know they're still doing her dirty work for her. And I'm listening to their wonderful stories and I'm eating it all. And I have to swallow the fact that she really was that person to those people. She knew how to be kind and loving and supportive. Just not to me. A boy lived in my ribs, and his savage fish put it in my mouth, and the mice were soon cleared. The deadly fish turned to Elizabeth and spoke in a trembling voice. Smear your body with the fat of Kentucky furniture. Do you like fish? said the tall, bearded man, the deadly fish lying yellow on the top of a tree, and he nearly lost a hand. But they wouldn't lie still, for cats, said the skeleton. The deadly fish felt himself drawn to the three flying swans, for his scent was everywhere, and nothing remained, for there was no one to be seen. I grew up in a big, very old house in Lincoln, Nebraska during the 80s. Now, for those of you who do not know where Lincoln, Nebraska is, it's in the middle. It, it's just in the middle. For those of you who are too young to remember the 80s, it's very much like Stranger Things, but the hair was bigger, the makeup was more intense, there were fewer demons, and we were all more angsty. 
for those of you who are old enough to remember the 80s, you'll remember that we were kind of obsessed as a country with the supernatural. And Leonard Nimoy was on TV every week, and he was telling us that he was in search of crystal skulls and the UFOs and Sasquatch and ghosts. And as a creative kid in the 80s, I was really excited by all of that. Like Mulder, I wanted to believe, and like Scully, I was skeptical. <laughs> but I lived in a really big old house, and there was a lot of scope for imagination. But between you and me, there really wasn't all that much that was creepy about the house. Now, now the basement was flat out creepy. It was unfinished and dark and dank. And because at some point in the 30s there had been servants, there was like a, a very sketchy toilet and a terrifying cubicle and rooms that descended in all different directions. And I never, ever, ever went in there as a kid if I could help it. Now, the other scary part of the house was the attic, which ironically was my brother and I's playroom. Now, it was a very, very big room. It was the entire length and width of the house. And it wasn't the scary 70s wallpaper and the wall-to-wall -wall beige carpeting that made it scary. <laughs> there were six doors in the room. And I don't know about you, but if you have a creative brain, doors are always a little scary. Where are they going? What's in there? These doors all led to big, unfinished storage areas that were connected by crawl spaces. So during the day, when the sunlight was coming through the big windows, fucking cool. <laughs> At night, when there were crawl spaces and dark spaces, fucking scary, <laughs> don't wanna be there. So my brother and I shared a room on the second floor and we each had a four poster bed that my parents had gotten in the state sale. Now four poster beds are really great for kids. You can play pirate, you can wrestle, you can jump on them. But the downside is there's a lot of room under the beds for monsters to hide and grab your ankles. <laughs> so my brother and I had very similar strategies for dealing this, with this, which is that we would catapult ourselves away from the bed and land far enough away that even a monster with really exceptionally long arms could not grab us. Now, when I was about five or six and my brother was seven or eight, I woke up in the middle of the night and moonlight was streaming in. There was a whole wall that was just windows and nature was calling loudly. And so I catapulted myself into space and I landed and I kind of did that sleep zombie walk towards the bathroom and I didn't turn on the light. I wanted to preserve night vision and I peed and I washed my hands and I dried my hands and I came back into the room and the moonlight was still streaming in and I passed my brother's bed and I was just getting ready to do the run and jump back into bed to avoid the monster. And I stopped because there was someone in my bed and the someone in my bed turned over and, and it was me. And the me in the bed's eyes snapped open and he looked at me and he smiled, but the smile that he smiled was not my smile. The face was my face and the eyes were my eyes, but the smile never reached his eyes. It was an unsmile. And he looked at me and he smiled and he pulled back the blanket and there was a butcher knife. And he grabbed the butcher knife and he looked at the knife and he looked at me and he smiled that unsmile again and he said, no one's ever gonna know. And he lunged at me and I woke up in the room and everything in the room was identical to what had been in my dream. And I couldn't wrap my brain around this because the dream and the reality were so close. And I, I wanted to scream, but my brother was asleep in the bed and I didn't want him to tease me and I didn't want to wake him up. And I finally, at some point, managed to get back to sleep, 
But while I was going back to sleep, I was thinking about what was the message of the dream? And sometimes dreams have internal logic, and the message of the dream was, this thing wanted to kill me, and if it did, it was going to take my place, and nobody was going to know. Now, I never had another dream like that where, where I saw myself, I saw that doppelganger. But in a way, what happened was worse because this man moved into my subconscious. He was unnaturally tall and thin, and he had a dark, dirty overcoat and a battered fedora that he wore low, and he had long, thin fingers that ended in yellow nails. And actually, everything about him had a yellow cast, and his face looked like it was melting. And you couldn't see his eyes because the fedora shadowed his face. And so all you could see was two deeper pools in the shadow. And the only thing that linked him to the first dream was the smile, because he had the unsmile. And he started to follow me in my dreams like a tourist. And I never knew when he'd show up, it would be a happy dream, a sports dream, the one where you sink the winning basket, or I'd be flying. And sometimes he was there. And sometimes it would just be a glimpse in a crowd, and sometimes he would chase me until I woke up. And just by the same dream logic connection, I knew that if he caught me in my dream, he would kill me and he would take my place, and nobody would ever know. Now this went on for a few years, and then a change in life, a wonderful opportunity. My brother got his own room. He got to move into my dad's old study, and I was supposed to stay in what had been our shared room. But I made a deal with my, our parents. I said that if I cleaned up the attic, could I move up there? Now, I think they agreed to this because they did not think I would do it. <laughs> now, five or six weeks of work got the attic exactly how I wanted it. And in victory, I moved my mattress up to the attic, and there was this beautiful little nook that had just enough room for my mattress and a table and a lamp. And in the back of the nook, there were two big picture windows, one that held an air conditioner that cooled this entire big area, and the other one was a big picture window that looked down into the backyard three stories down. Now, I will admit, even though I was a grown kid of 11, uh, the door still freaked me out. They had a tendency to pop open during the day. And so every night before I went to sleep, I would carefully close all six doors and just, just make sure, and I'd go to sleep. One night, I woke up, and nature was once again calling. Now, the one drawback to this room, the one drawback, because it was a pretty fucking cool room, was that there was no bathroom. So when nature screamed, you had to decide whether you really had to go, and then you had to go all the way down this steep set of stairs to my old room and go to the bathroom there. I decided it wasn't a negotiation. Nature was screaming. And I got up, and I swung my legs out of the bed, and the minute my feet touched the carpet, I felt something was wrong. And I started to shuffle across the attic, and the moonlight was streaming in through the windows, and the atmosphere felt wrong. It was, it, it was heavy and, and strange. And the sounds that come with living, not in the country, but you could hear crickets and you could hear, and there was nothing. It was, it, it was like having a, a pillow around your head. And I made my way down the stairs and I pushed open the door and the door always caught in the carpet. And so not only did it make a loud noise, but you had to push really hard. And as I pushed open the door, I looked up and there where I couldn't miss it, was my father's skeleton. And I knew it was my father's skeleton because he was in the dark green robe that he always wore around the house. And I knew 
that the waxy-faced man had killed my father. And all the adrenaline in my body rushed into me because I knew I was going to die. But I thought I might as well try to save my family. So I turned the corner and I ran to my brother's room and I pushed open the door and my brother wasn't there and my brother's body wasn't there. But the backpack that he had taken to school the day before was torn open and it was thrown everywhere. And I knew that the waxy faced man had killed my brother. I tore down the other hallway and I went to my parents' room and I threw open the door and my mom wasn't there and my mom's body wasn't there. But the book that my mom had been reading the day before was torn up and it was thrown on the bed. And I knew that the waxy faced man had killed my mom. And I, I dashed down the stairs and I locked the front door and I locked the back door. Now, I still can't tell you what the logic there was because clearly he had just killed my family, so he was in the house. But my brain was fixated on one strategy and it was something my brother and I had discussed when we were kids. If I could make it alive back up to the attic, then I could hide in one of the eaves and when I knew that the waxy faced man was coming for me, I could crawl through the crawl space, go out through another door behind him, go down the stairs and escape. So I made my way back up to the attic and around every corner I expected to see him in the shadows or to see his hands come around the corner and it didn't happen and somehow I got to the attic and I closed the door and it made the sound against the carpet, the sound that I would know would warn me of his coming. And I got to my bed and I was trying to decide which door I would hide behind and I looked in the backyard and there three stories down was a waxy faced man and he looked up at me and he took off his hat and it was the first time I'd ever seen him without his hat and his head was covered in scabs and scars and his long oily hair hung down to his shoulders and he smiled the unsmile and he pointed at me and he put back on his hat and he started walking towards the house and my legs collapsed and I sat hard on the bed and I thought back to all the horror movies I had watched and I had watched so many at this point and I thought what are you doing you gotta fucking run that's the only thing you can do in the situation is fucking run but all I could do was think about the strategy which was you hide in the eaves and then you sneak out the back that's all you can do and as I was trying to figure out which door I would pick, over my right shoulder, I heard And I froze. And all the adrenaline hit my system all over again. And I felt like roadkill right before it becomes roadkill. And I turned slowly to the window, and there with his face pressed against the glass was the waxy-faced man three stories up. And he smiled at me. And I woke up covered in sweat and I did scream because my brother wasn't there. And once again, I looked around the room. I was so confused. It was so real. And every detail in the room was identical to what it had been in my dream, where the moonlight was hitting. The difference was that the air didn't feel strange. I, I was aware that, okay, this is, the, this is the waking world. And as traumatic as that dream was on top of the first dream, the waxy-faced man left me alone for quite a while and, and I actually started to get used to my room and I started to really enjoy having this big space and there were even a few mornings where I would wake up and one of the eve doors would be cracked and I was like, all right, I'm an adult. <laughs> now, when I was 13 or 14, like most people of the 80s and 90s who were interested in the supernatural, I discovered Stephen King and I tore my way through his entire library. 
But I have a problem that I think is probably a problem with a lot of people from the 80s, which is, I, I'm going to call it the never-ending story syndrome, <laughs> which is when I'm reading and the lead characters are in danger, I worry for them. And I feel that I am betraying them in some way if I stop reading while they're in danger. <laughs> now, the problem with this is when you're reading horror, they're always in danger. <laughs> so I was reading The Shining, and it was 3.30 in the morning, and there I was in the Overlook Hotel with Danny, and it was just one more chapter, and just one more chapter, because Danny was not getting safe. And as I'm reading, I hear, over my right shoulder, and I freeze because I'm pretty fucking sure I'm awake because I'm reading. And I don't know what to do because all I have to do is look over my shoulder and I'll know what it is, but I can't look over my shoulder. So I wait and nothing and nothing. So I sort of laugh to myself, but it's that laugh of a, <laughs> no, fuck, no. <laughs> and I, I read a page, and I read another half a page, and I hear <laughs> over my right shoulder. And I think, okay, that's not my imagination. What the fuck is that? And I think, trees, it's trees. There are trees that grow up in my backyard and, and they scrape against the house and sometimes when it's very, very windy, they'll scrape against the screens and they'll make a very loud noise. And I'm not usually up at 3.30 in the morning. Maybe this is what trees sound like at 3.30 in the morning. And just as I'm arriving at this brilliant idea, I hear Not trees. And at this point, I'm so confused because I've had two dreams now that I can't separate reality and the dream. And so I do something I've never done before and I have never done since, which is I pinch myself hard. Because if I am asleep, it's got to wake me up, right? It just hurts. And I'm still there holding the shining, unable to turn my head to look at what's behind me. Now, here's the thing I told you, I'd seen every horror movie up to that point. And I was the guy who, when people did stupid shit on the screen, would be like, are you fucking kidding me? Don't run up the stairs. Go out the back door. What the fuck are you doing? There's a bat right there. And this motherfucker is sitting there like this when all I have to do is look over my shoulder. And as I'm thinking these thoughts, it's probably five seconds, but it seems like a minute. I hear, and I'm at a loss. I have no idea what this could be. I have one idea what this could be. But finally, my brain grabs on one last idea. What could this be? Sometimes my brother is really bad at being bad. And on occasion, he has snuck out of the house and locked himself out. And when he does this, he throws rocks at my window until I come in and let him into the house. Could this be rocks? It's not rocks. So I take the book and I put it down beside me and I slowly sit up and I take every ounce of willpower I have 
and slowly turn over my right shoulder. And there, three stories above the backyard, in the window, is a face. And all of a sudden, I'm 20 feet away from the window, and I have no fucking idea how I got there. I don't know if I jumped. I don't know if I ran. But there in the window is the face of a very big raccoon. (laughs) And flanked behind the raccoon are three other raccoons who are all reading Stephen King over my shoulder. And I laughed a little bit, and I cried a little bit, and I peed a little bit. But the waxy-faced man never bothered me again. Now, here's the thing. I wish I could tell you where this came from. Some kind of weird imposter syndrome that kids have. I was always the tallest in the class. I was always growing. Was I afraid I was going to grow into a monster? Or was the waxy-faced man actually something to do with my house, some sort of weird echo that found a voice through me. Or the least appealing option is the waxy-faced man real. And if the waxy-faced man is real, I hope he doesn't visit any of you. But if he does, find yourself a fucking trash panda. (laughs) Thank you. This is Pogo behind me now with a song called Horrorland. And we just heard from Mark Campbell. That was just recorded a couple nights ago at the Risk Live Show at Caveat in New York City. And you can find Mark at markcampbellactor.com. Before Mark, we heard a little something from Vincent Price, although all out of order. And before that, something from Juliet Steele that incredible story about dreams of her mother. And before that, we heard that amazing interstitial sent in by J.J. Evans, where he recorded his daughter, Etta, improvising a scary story of her own. That was a real treat, too. Folks, if you love how unique and filled with surprises these holiday episodes are, then support us over at patreon.com slash risk. I have to give a big shout out right now to three new Patreon members, Carrie Sturgis, Wolfgang Bangerth, 
and Oscar Flores. Thank you so much. You three, it really, really means the world to us that our fans help us keep this running because we very, very, very much so need it. Um, past couple of years have been especially rough on us. We've been spread especially thin. We have lost several employees. We have cut people's pay. We have cut people's hours. We're basically just working five times as hard to keep this thing running. You know, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year. We are working and working and working. Plus, there's so much to gain by becoming a member over at Patreon. So many bonus stories and interviews with storytellers and check-ins from me. Just tons of bonus content. And if you want to make a one-time donation, that's at paypal.me slash risk show. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Our final two scary stories this time around come to us from Adam Selbst. But before that, a story by Layla Sammy. And Layla sent this to us from the UK. Here's Layla now with a story we call Haunted Serenade. So one of my most frightening experiences happened when I was about 16. I was home alone, sitting in the living room, reading a book. And it was quite late at night. Everyone had gone out and I had kind of lost track of time. It was starting to get dark outside. Now where I grew up in Scotland, we had quite a big living room with a comfy sofa that I was sitting reading on and these huge floor-to-ceiling windows that could be really nice during the day and in summer but at night would become quite creepy. We were across from some woodland and there weren't many other houses around so it took on a bit of an eerie feeling at night time and then behind the couch there was a big old dusty piano that could definitely have done with being tuned.
So I'm sitting on the sofa, my back's to the piano, and I heard the piano begin to play. It, it wasn't a tune, it was just like random notes as if someone was hitting the keys and didn't really know what they were doing. I remember just freezing, and you know that feeling of fear washing over your body as if your skin has suddenly just become too tight? I guess that's the feeling of goosebumps rising, so that's that's what I was feeling. I got up slowly and turned to face the piano and what I saw absolutely petrified the living daylights out of me. The keys were moving and the notes were playing but there was no one there and I, I couldn't believe it. Like I, I, I'm not exaggerating when I say that I honestly thought I was going to wet myself. <laughs> I was so, so frightened. So I started walking towards the piano. You know the way people do in horror movies and you're like, no, don't go in there. Yeah, I, I went in there. And my mind just couldn't process what was going on. How on earth could the keys on the piano be moving? Could music be playing? I don't believe in ghosts, but it would appear that there was a ghost playing the piano in my childhood home while I was home alone. So as I got closer and I felt like I was moving in slow motion where you're kind of wading your way through towards something, I suddenly heard something that was even stranger. I heard a sneeze. And I'm thinking to myself, I, I don't know much about ghosts. I, I don't believe in them. But surely a ghost can't sneeze. Like, what could they catch? Or what kind of allergy could they have that would make them sneeze? So... I stopped and I listened and, and then I heard a little sneeze again and then I heard a little high-pitched whine and realising what it was I, I remember just like being flooded with relief and laughing out loud and I reached down and removed the kickboard from the piano to find my little black cat sitting inside the piano covered in dust and what had happened was he'd climbed in through the gap above the kickboard and was walking along the strings causing the piano to play itself. So yeah, that's the story of the time that I thought there was a piano playing ghost in my living room. sometimes. We all go a little mad sometimes. Have you checked the children? children. Whatever you do, don't fall asleep. I'm afraid! Don't be afraid! No. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Ugh. <sighs>
I'm scared to close my eyes. I'm scared to open them. I'm gonna die out here. Now clear your minds. You know what scares you. It has from the very beginning. Don't give it any help. It knows too much already. What an excellent day for an exorcism. There was nothing that I wanted more than to attend LaGuardia High School in Manhattan. You know, the fame school. The only problem was, I didn't live in Manhattan. I lived on Long Island with my parents. And even though I had this foolproof scheme for, you know, faking a Manhattan address, there was no way they were going to let me do that. We decided on a compromise. They were going to let me go to the Long Island equivalent. And while it wasn't the fame school, it was a big step up from my local zoned high school. All of a sudden, I was hanging out with these artist kids from all over Long Island. You know, cool kids. And none of them were cooler than my new friend Enid. While I was spending most Friday nights sitting at home applying pimple cream, Enid was out there in Manhattan hitting loft parties. You could see her photo in the back pages of magazines. So... When she invited me to meet her artist boyfriend, I was overjoyed. Word was that Robert was a 50-year-old artist who had moved to America after breaking out of an Italian prison for cocaine trafficking. Pretty cool, right? I was ready for this. It was only after I arrived at Robert's penthouse apartment that I realized I was not. Robert's entire apartment was swathed in red velvet, like no 50-year-old I had ever met. Everything was dark, lit by candles. It was absurd. First, he showed me his artwork, painting after painting of basilisks and lizards dressed in bishop's robes, messily consuming young children. All right, so far, so good. But then he began showing me some of his objects that he had collected over the years. The first was a mummified cat with a diamond tiara on its head. I exclaimed, that's incredible. Where do you even procure something like this? He said, well, we actually got that from this very apartment. We were renovating. And when we knocked out the walls, we found this mummified creature inside of it. And I didn't know what it was, so we brought it to the Museum of New York. And they told me that when they were building all of these buildings, back in the late 19th century. They would frequently wall up a male black cat 
as they were finishing the last structures. The idea was that the dying spirit of this cat would take away any bad juju that had accumulated during the construction. And while they wanted to keep it, Robert decided that it really belonged to him, so he brought it home, put it on his shelf, and decorated it with the diamond tiara. I said, that's incredible. He replied, well, if you like that, you're going to find this really interesting. He brought me across the room. He had a small jar filled with formaldehyde with a small, perfectly formed human fetus floating inside. My jaw dropped open. I said, this is unbelievable. Where do you get something like this? From the bathroom where Enid was getting ready for us to go out and have dinner, she exclaimed loudly, Oh, Robert, you're not showing Adam your son, are you? I looked at him in shock. He stared at me gravely and said, You know, sometimes if you want something done right, just got to do it yourself.
that is all for this year's Scary Stories episode. This is Sufjan Stevens behind me now. And we just heard from Adam Selbst. Before that, a little interstitial by our episode editor, Jeff Barr, who does a ton of work on these holiday episodes with all the interstitials woven in between. And John LaSala and Taj Easton also contributed to the editing. And John Nelson made some helpful suggestions. John is a friend of the show going way back to the beginning. He's the host of a sound collage podcast called Some Assembly Required. Folks, on November 17th, the Risk Live show is back at Caveat in New York City. It'll be 7 p.m. Eastern, simultaneously live-streamed on YouTube, and you can get tickets at risk-show.com slash tour. Don't forget the storystudio.org is where you'll find our storytelling training and corporate workshops. That's the storystudio.org. And you can hire me personally for storytelling training at kevinallison.com. You can follow us on our socials as well at Risk Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at the Kevin Allison. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Let's go. Let's go.